This is the Scalf Podcast, and I am Mark Belden. Scalf is to be found at www.scalf.org.uk. It's a virtual project space accessible to anyone everywhere. Like a physical artist-run gallery, it's a space created and curated by artists, presenting work in different ways. It's not the documentation of an exhibition happening somewhere else. The site is the space and the visitor is you on your computer or device. Exhibitions happen quarterly and the podcast accompanies each show, featuring an interview with the curator of the exhibition. This is episode eight. My guest this time is Hung Lee. She is a researcher, curator, and designer based in London and Beijing. Her curatorial research focuses on network cultures, feminist theory, and organizational approaches to social justice and structural change. She is currently a PhD student and a visiting mentor at the Royal College of Art. She has curated the new group exhibition on Scalf entitled No Longer Being Able to Be Able. I spoke to Hung over Zoom. I guess this is the third episode in a row that's happened remotely. As I mentioned last time, there's something nice about recording every three months. It sort of becomes a diary or a marker of time passing. The podcasts this year go from pre-pandemic in episode five to full lockdown in episode six, and then reopening in episode seven, and then re closing now? I'm not really sure where we are now, and perhaps that's a lot of what we speak about in this episode. How do you critique or comment on neoliberalism or internet culture or the pandemic when you're right in the middle of all these things? So I hope this podcast works as an introduction to no longer being able to be able, and also an interesting snapshot of how we were thinking in October 2020. Before my interview with Hung, I thought we could hear part of the audio from Durd's piece, Mountain of Flames. So I was thinking of uh, starting with talking about the structure of the show. Mm-hmm. So there are these uh, distinct groupings of works, but within each page, the works exist overlapping and sometimes launching in different ways. Was it important to structure it this way? Right. So the project is actually a combination between a very conventional way of structuring the exhibition, I would say, by having different sections. But at the same time, it aims to explore the in-betweenness of the works, especially considering the specific conditions of viewing and presenting arts online. So um, the reason why this uh, project is divided into four sections is because we are trying to unpack a quite complicated matter and I think dividing the artworks into four sections can actually um, help the artists to talk to each other and help the viewers to understand the messages easier. And each section has its um, own individual web page. The first section is about the excessive positivities in this society. So um, how our life is actually impacted by the mentality of having to achieve the most and to continue to sustain ourselves as individuals, to be responsible for our individual life and to, to bear the risk is what is talking about in this section. There are artworks discussing about um, how as female, are they, um, how female are experiencing the difficulties in the societies, especially by, you know, having to follow certain definition or norms to be able to be 
um, a successful person. And also it talks about how as liberals um, in workplace, we are required to continuous output labors for the sake of someone um, who is distinct from our daily life and for the profit making of a uh, corporation. Um, so it's more like defining what excessive positivity means because the project is quite influenced by um, Bai Chong Han's uh, book called The Burnout Society. And it talks about how excessive possibi uh, positivities are impacting our mental status in contemporary lives. How, um, how depression is actually a result from being forced to achieve something which might not be affordable for individual beings. Or the idea of being responsible individual is actually an, ide um, an ideology imposed by neoliberalism. So in that sense, section one is underpinning the criteria of how to be a successful person in this society. I, was, I wanted to add, so I was just thinking about that within Geraldine Snell's piece that she's, it's sort of, it's like playing with these ideas of like self-help and self-actualization. But then also it made me think about the shift that a lot of people who work performatively have to, or in performance, have to find a way to do that online now. And yes these sort of improvised strategies, but it's really nice because it's sort of, it is all of those things, but it's also sort of playing with those ideas at the same time. Exactly, Jodine Snell's um, topic of uh, her practices are mainly about um, the excessive positivity and how to resist that through performative behaviors and recordings. And she is very good at mixing music with performance and always record materials from her uh, bedroom or her room. So in this project, we included one piece called Light and Love Live, which is actually a bedroom performance. And she was using that looping recording technique to sample herself to create a call uh, talking about the anxiety in this society and also how to slow down, how to rethink about the meaning of life and the way of living our lives. And I, I think she is particularly interesting in this section by her way of interviewing different topics. In that way, her pieces are talking to the other artists um, in this show. So in the section one, if you browse through the interface, you can see different works popping out together done by different artists. And Geraldine's work is specifically spreading across that section, talking to many other artists in that section. For example, one of her pieces was um, talking to uh, Judith Kiss. Um, Judith Kiss work about um, enough uh, judgment to female and Geraldine Snell has a film series called Over Love which we're talking about how this requirement to female can be noticed both on mobile culture for example how we use tinder how we are judged by male gaze um, through the phone but also how girls are understanding themselves according to those imposed criteria. So in that way, Jodin is a key artist in that section to, to help people getting through the, um, the, the topics and also to, to understand the other artists' works. I think sometimes it might be easier to directly critique um, the, the problems but in this section, most of the artists are using the opposite way, which is to reflect upon their personal lives and mm. the effective nature of that culture. So in that way, it is difficult because they need to open up themselves to the others and also to find a better way to communicate, uh, communicate online, which is probably quite different from communicating through white cube setup, through 
an art object because internet culture itself sometimes encourages a very quick, fragmented, and visual way of expression. So these artists are mostly creating works very specifically for the internet context. In that way, they're challenging both themselves to open up their um, pressure feelings um, in their daily life, but also to find a way to talk about that to more people, potentially those people who they never spoke to and they can encounter online and have conversations there. And I guess that, that sort of leads into the, the second section, which is about digital culture and network culture. I think the second section started from the internet culture, which encourages sometimes intense way of communication, which is not that obvious before the internet or during the uh, starting of the internet. But currently, since we, we mostly use social media for communication, the way of communicating is changed to a level that um, people need to formulate very intensive, um, intensive emotion to be able to be seen online. Um, mm. In that sense, Dank's piece, um, Consensual Cannibalism, is talking about that. And um, they're reflecting upon the streaming culture of, you know, um, streaming something quite strange in daily life. For example, keep eating, constantly eating junk food, and people will enjoy watching that live on a streaming platform. And how language can go quite extreme in that sense, but without specific meaning in the comment. And how that communication is impacting the performer's um, mental status. So mm. that piece is reflecting upon that excessive way of communication, which is not always positive, but it tends to be overloaded, oversaturated, and um the meaning is becoming diluted. So um, I think a piece also talking about that point is Joshua Citarella's post-left. That's a research about the post-left phenomenon on the Instagram, mainly formulated by teenagers who are trying to situate themselves within an overloaded amount of political ideologies and uh, this sense of disorientation today when there are so many voices coming from different politicians and parties and um, they're producing memes to be able to understand those political ideologies and how these ideologies are related to philosophies. So uh, Joshua was doing a few years of research and produced a PDF document to talk about how that post-left teenager party was formulated and actually, that was not a single party, but multiple parties and how they interact with each other and how one teenager can actually bear different ideologies at the same time by managing different Instagram accounts. Um, but they might be doing left and right memes all at the same time. Or, exactly. Yeah. And some... Uh, some teenagers started from producing right-wing memes and gradually they, they see themselves as being left so that they post the right-wing Instagram account and open new account and keep posting uh, memes for the left. And they, that is the teenager's way to be able to understand um, how those in, uh, informations means to them and how to how to connect with those ideas, which might not be produced on the internet, but they are trying to migrate those ideas onto the internet through their own ways. But at the same time, I think there is a growing phenomenon of feeling um, nihilism. Um, growing, there is a growing tendency of nihilism online. It is called cyber nihilism. Okay, good. <laughs> yeah, it's quite interesting that when the political ideologies are being migrated online at such a scale by teenagers, people start to get lost and find that political ideas are losing its, um, their vitalities online. Hmm. They're just memes for having fun, 
for having a very quick communication about the individual feelings, but it doesn't change the society anymore. So in that sense, teenagers are getting lost again after trying different ideologies and to express that through meanings. Well, it seems like a like a different pressure, like as opposed to the pressure of positivity, like the pressure around, I don't know, around making something viral, whether it's like dank, that there's a, having something slightly extreme or gross around junk food or just extreme in terms of quantity, but also, you know, extreme sometimes in terms of what it provokes or, or politics, like the thing that gets attention is, is not necessarily the, the most subtle thing. It's there's this, there's a pressure on that kind of content to be very immediate and very immediately to provoke a reaction, I guess, whatever yes. reaction it is. Yes, that is very true. I think in the section two, we're not talking about excessive positivity that much. Instead, mm. we are trying to think about, okay, in this excessive culture, what is the result and what is being changed through that? And I think especially for the four, um, four artists in that section, they're focusing on, for example, consumerism and how consumerism is combined to um, the internet culture and also how political ideologies are combined to the um, internet-centered way of communication. But at the same time, there is an artist, Donatella Della Retta, who is talking about the violence on the internet, mm. sometimes done by corporations through datafication, and sometimes also done by the government in joining forth with um, the platforms through censorship. And there is an art piece called Images in Spite of All, which talks about the situation in Syria when people were using YouTube for streaming war. Platforms became, in that sense, a medium for documenting the, the violence, which was probably the only means for them to share that message to more people. But at the end, uh, many of the videos were deleted by YouTube for some reasons. And, well, the official reason is it involves blood and violence. But in fact, um, it is inseparable from American politics. So in that sense, the Internet encourages people to keep uploading and to interweave their lives with the Internet. But at the same time, are we losing the agency of keeping our memory and to formulate collective memory? And who is holding the power of deleting our memory and causing the contemporary amnesia? But at the same time in that section, there's Frankie Roberts, who sort of, was just the piece, is it Accept All Cookies? Yes. Yeah. And the, so it's within that world and it's reflecting on the, the sort of insidious, I guess, level of control and also sort of, I guess, that cookies, that constant monitoring of what people are doing. But at the same time, she sort of found a space to be playful or there's lots of wordplay and the animation. And that's an interesting counterbalance with Donatella's piece within that mm -hmm. section. Yes, that's very true. I think that's the very compelling part of this project of juxtaposing different works talking about similar subjects but for, for completely different reasons or backgrounds and with different approaches. Frankie, for example, um, is using a more funny way of interpreting and also destructuring the internet culture. So she gets inspiration from the languages specifically online, but also some symbols and logos on the internet. And then he hybrids different logos together to formulate a critique to that, but not being so serious. Rather, she used a quite humorous means to, to just provoke people 
to think about how they use those languages and accept cookies, for example, as a behavior online and what it means to us. And I think also she gets inspirations from popular music sometimes. And it's quite funny that um, in Always Accept Cookies, it started from a face saying, I can't feel my face when, when I am with you. So it is from a popular music. But when okay. she is so when she is talking about that in her own tone and actually um, twist it to a male voice, it becomes quite interesting to think about what does the face means on the internet. And can we really feel ourselves when we are situated in that overloaded information and we are forced to accept something? Otherwise, we can't even experience what is happening on the internet. So I think Frankie's work as well talks about consumerism. For example, she mentioned impulse buy, keep clapping. And I feel the same to that, especially during COVID, that people are forced to purchase things online. And it is so easy to just click a button and then the product will arrive right in front of your door. But at the same time, in my blood, the meaning of each object we are getting. So in a sense, we feel the enjoyment by just purely pressing that button and receive the thing as an experience. And that might encourage impulse buy, I guess, during the coronavirus. And um, so in section two, in that sense, talking about consumerism is also a way to reflect upon our identity as consumers and how we are encouraged to keep upgrading the, the things we are used to keep on um, keeping up to date by purchasing new things and how this culture is resulted in also a nihilism in terms of uh, we are missing the meaning of understanding each object and the background behind that, and the histories behind that. Instead, we are quite trapped in that endless enjoyment of getting new products, which was also talked by Donatella more or less in the short, that um, corporations are encouraging this culture to be able to keep profit profiting from individuals because they uh, people want to prove that they're able to buy then corporations can keep finding buyers to buy their products and then propel the corporation so at the end who is benefiting uh, who is benefiting from that right so I, I guess section two is posing that questions without really giving a specific answer regarding what next? What should we do then? I suppose it's also sometimes it's like an ease of interface in those big platforms that there probably are other places other than Amazon to get something, but you you get in a habit around like these giant, giant corporations just because there's this sort of ease. Yes, um, there is ease and enjoyment both by using mm. that interface. And in fact, some corporations are researching about behavior manipulation, especially through interfaces. Uh, which way of presenting information can make the behavior become a habit for people and how to make it viral and how to make it repetitive, consuming more times from a single person. I think, um, yes, you're right. It creates a sense of ease and maybe also safe in coronavirus. It will come in this package, it'll be delivered in this way, and, um, and I don't have to leave the house. And Yes, um, but at the same time, this sense of protection, safe and ease is worth to, to be rethinked regarding what's the meaning of that and why we feel that, um, who is benefiting from that apart from our temporary feeling of pleasure and whether that pleasure is really what we want. So I guess this project is partly about that, 
to rethink about all the habits we have currently. And are we feeling happy about that, or we're actually feeling a sense of unease behind the ease of that?、Mm. That, that longer term unease with them. Yeah, the longer term unease is definitely there, and、um, I think this project is is talking about that unease in the contemporary life, which is shared by many people. And since we are keep being busy, improving, we are able to buy, we are able to work, we are able to be responsible for ourselves. We are losing the time and power. To think about where that unease is from and how to change the situation, so I guess the first step is to unpack that sense of unease to understand where it comes from. And then I guess section three is then it's related to some of those ideas, but looking at it more in term in the context of art. Yes, section three is talking about the art ecology. And it picks up up upon a few topics mentioned in section one and section two. For example, is excessive positivity and how that is related to identities, labors, and the minority groups. And also, it talks to the section two specifically about you know how we are encouraged encouraged to keep producing content for a capital centered market and ecology. Um, so in that section, for example, Judith Keys is talking about、um, how the norms in the art ecology is impacted by the business management and corporate culture, and for example, how galleries are representing the artists so that the artists are losing the chance to interact with each other and to to practice care with each other. And also,、um, she talks about how, as a、uh, graduate from art school, she has to strive for life by doing、um, zero-hour labors for different companies, and also becomes an entrepreneur for herself to be able to to pay the loan. And I think that somehow represents many art students, at at least around me, and those students they're. They're pursuing art career, but at the end, it is not only about producing artworks anymore. It is more about how to survive if you are an artist, and especially as a young artist or young female artist,、um, how to be recognized. And before you are being recognized, how to socialize with people, and how to how to earn money as probably Uber driver as. Airbnb cleans it, or the for, for by doing the other jobs. It made me think, as an artist, about the sort of the way we sort of perform the role of an artist. That you're expected to do certain things, and then there's all this other work or labor or employment that's happening in the rest of your life, and you're supposed to. Not talk about it, or not acknowledge it, or I don't know whether that's changing. But it, you know, always feeling as an artist that you have two CVs, like you have the art CV and then the the, C, the employment, the money making CV. Yes, that's quite precise. Because as a curator, I was also taught to produce different CVs, and one indicating my curatorial skills, but the others indicating my Other life earning skills, and that is quite funny because recently I think on Instagram there is a trendy act of sharing the governmental recommendation of alternative jobs because of COVID、mm. and、um, the the job loss due to that, and artists particularly are recommended to do quite a lot of jobs which has、uh, which have zero. Connection to art itself, for example,、um, fixing an airplane or fixing pipes. You know, it's quite random because I I think art art job is quite in a black zone that is not decoded by the the social norms in general. So in that sense, 
we we lost a sense of what kind of skill do we really have, or what what is the value of art making during the pandemic and after the pandemic, and I guess that that confusion is also reflected by Max Grau's work, which both yeah. talk about how as artists people are encouraged to keep producing new works and keep being visible online and offline within the job market of within the art ecology. But at the same time, people are all thinking about, well, if I can't do this commission, I can after all drive Uber for life. So that plan B is maybe behind everyone's head, but seldom brought forth for discussion. And I think this section is a chance to talk about those background feelings and stories to encourage people to to unpack the problems or issues within the art ecology and to think about where it comes from and is it all right or not. Well, I thought also with Max's, it was when he was talking about things that might be on the art CV, like writing or teaching that a lot, you know, writing, reading, all of that might just happen in bed and it might not look like work or there might be work happening and sort of the people on the other side of the email don't realize how he's working. Like they're sort of assuming a desk and a, and a certain structure of work, but he's talking about how it doesn't work that way, that it can work from bed with someone else in bed with you or the, you know that it it's very different than the expectation of of work i suppose yes so i guess in the art ecology we all have some kind of stereotypes of thinking about what an artist should be for example Matt Grau mentioned that there was a student asked about whether art artists should be hardworking. And he said, I haven't seen any artists being um, being lazy. All the artists are hardworking. And then he started to reflect upon himself and think about the way of working and why we are trying to escape from talking about laziness and the, the potential of being lazy. And I think, yes, Talking about the forms of labor is helpful in terms of rethinking about the way of producing artworks and the way of being as an artist. And also it is helpful for us to think about what is what is the cause of the stereotypes of being an artist. Imagine an artist being in a studio and within a very clean surrounding, have paintings hanged or um, very proudly introduce different crafts as inspirations instead of exposing the messiness and sometimes laziness behind that. So is it really impact by the art ecology itself or instead it is the fact of being in this burnout society influenced by neoliberalism and entrepreneurial culture? So I guess this section is not to criticize the art ecology. It is in, instead to look at different sections of that and to think about how it, how it, how it is really working for individual artists and for a collective of different artists sharing different experiences by similar feelings. Well, I was also thinking about Babe World's piece and then the sets of expectations that might be on like art students or someone at an art college. And although hopefully people are coming from lots of different backgrounds, it's, um, I don't know, also that feeling in, in the piece of having to, to hide parts of your background or hide, well, again, hiding work you do or hiding where you come from to fit in. Yes, Bakewell's piece is very much about confession. It is, 
it is about after a long term of hiding something behind to be able to survive, what is the time for us to confess which is really behind us, where we come from, and what what is really our background. I guess Big World is trying to articulate that performative culture in the art ecology that we want to blend in by looking similar to the others and how this uh, white-dominated ecology is imposing pressures for the minorities, sometimes not intentionally and sometimes intentionally. For example, in art institutions, although we can see different colors people within that space, but if you look at who are wearing their name card as a staff, then it is not quite easy to find ethnic minorities. So mm. in that sense, I think Ashley in Babe World was talking about how she was doing an interview at the Royal College of Art, which she eventually got admitted. She was afraid that revealing her black identity would minim minimize her chance of being admitted. I think um, to be able to confess in this way of talking about her black background and her feeling as half white, half black person within the art ecology is helping people to understand um, the environment and maybe from another perspective to be able to understand the problems from a quite effective way instead of, you know, mm. just talking about the problems and saying, okay, this is an unequal ecology and we need to change. I think by listening to the podcast produced by Babe World, we're able to understand how this young girl is struggling within this ecology for years and how her family was worried for her because of that. And that might be helpful for more people to share the similar feeling and to eventually have conversation or have chances to talk about that. And I guess change will probably happen after a long time, but at least in that section, we are trying to articulate the feelings from different perspectives. And then I, I guess the, the final section is emotion, or how would you talk about the final section? Yes, the final section, instead of being very rational and to continue this categorization, it instead um, talking about the same issue from an, another perspective, which is the emotions we are feeling together and how to express that through art making and from what perspectives. So, um, for example, Emma Finn and Mina Hedari Waite are talking about protect and survive, and they're reinterpreting, uh, reinterpreting the protect and survive produced by British government in late 1970s and early 1980s. So it was originally about how people should create, um, create their own fallout rooms to protect themselves from nuclear attack. And today, when we look at that, it becomes sort of metaphors about how, how we protect ourselves when life becomes so precarious and we don't have that enemy as a country or as nuclear technology, but we do have the feeling of being dangerous or in a very risky situation constantly, every day and in different different occasions. So that sense of being micromanaged and micro-censored is probably what is re-intriguing us to think about how to care, how to protect and how to survive, but survive together. And what is the boundary of defining together? Um, I guess it is talking about the territory because Emma Finn and Mina Hidari Waite were inviting, um, inviting refugees within that piece 
to perform the characters in the video. So in that sense, they are talking about what is the boundary of of protection, and if we should build up a follow-up room, who should be included within that room? And I, well, talking about emotions, I think Amathena, Mina, Hidori, Wait were having a more fun, but sarcastic voice within the piece. Well, instead, Dirt Collective, which is formulated by、um, Zhao Ziqing and Shi Rui, are actually using the opposite way, which is quite heavy, and talking about death. So they learn the language from Chinese funeral、um, ceremonies, and to reappropriate that into the art piece. And for me, it is almost like enchanting the world for reworking. To to unearth the untold stories and to retell those stories for alternative futures. Oh, and that, their their piece is what it feels. I mean, it's there's something yeah quite heavy and quite almost apocalyptic about it. But at the same time, it, like the animation is so beautiful, and it it's there's that sort. Of, I almost like all of the things in this section. There's a there's an element of. Joy in the contrasting to to the more difficult content that, as well. Yes,、um, I think the the three artists and artist groups are each using a quite specific aesthetic language to talk about that heavy topic. And、um, as you said, Dirt was using a very Um, exquisite moving image language, heavy, heavy craftsmanship within that to be able to talk about、um, funeral ritual and also mythology. So in that sense, people can feel the joy within the video, but also to to share with the feeling of death and what is happening after death. So.、Um, Talking about death and aesthetics, Simona Mi is actually also doing、um, a similar approach, but in a much loud and crazy and more like pop culture way of expression. And she was inspired by a story of a dancer trying to do the dip, which is from drag culture, and she ac- accidentally hurt herself by falling. From the back, and Simona、mm. Mi was retelling that story. But I think it is very intriguing in that piece that、uh, when the drag queen was falling from a high rise, there is a sense of disorientation, but also reorientation because that main figure was dropping from up to down. But at the same time, she was picturing the people walking on the floor. So in a sense, they're like walking dead, and dropping from up to down is in a sense the right direction compared to that horizontal meaningless movement. So I guess、mm. in that piece there is a metaphor of doing a dip when the life is becoming so pointless, mundane, and people are busy with something that they don't know the point in that. And that reminded me of that situationist prank, which is you know to do something dramatic within the urban context to disturb the order and to intrigue people to rethink about their daily lives. And I think there is some political meanings within that, which is partly borrowed from queer culture and drag culture, but also it is indicating. Revolution, or at least a collective reimagination of of this、um, of direction and where to go. Well, I think also the other term for the dip is the death drop, which sounds quite dark, but it's something that would exist as part of a performance, as part of something celebratory and fun, even <laughs> although. Drag culture is also, you know, playing with gender and stirring things up. Yes, yes, that mixture of fun, dangerous, 
and to alert people of something all of a sudden. It's very interesting, and I think that could potentially become a tactic for people to intervene into the daily life. I guess the show was originally planned before the pandemic and the lockdown, and I was wondering. Were there were there elements of it that changed, or were there ways you were thinking about it that changed during during this year? Yes, definitely. Um, because no longer being able to be able was confirmed by scale to be staged in June or July, roughly. So I received that confirmation quite early on, roughly in in March. At that time, COVID was rising, but not that serious, especially the in the beginning of March. But after COVID happened and the lockdown was prevalent all around the world, I started to rethink about the topic and ask myself whether it is still relevant for people, because at that time people were talking about, okay, the pandemic is potentially a turning point for people. And we will rethink about the surroundings and think about whether the happenings are necessary, and we can pause something which has been continuously happening, and then to restructure the society. So that kind of naively optimistic voices are currently fading away after the pandemic was ameliorated for a while. And it was during that time I started to think about this project being relevant again, because when the British government were talking about build, 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 and I found it's quite fascinating how British government were comparing Britain to the other nations and saying why we are being so slow all the time. We should be more efficient. We should build faster than ourselves and. Than the other nations, this mentality of keep working to be able to prove themselves, to prove that they're strong enough, being able to to survive in difficult situations, is partly necessary, but also worth us to think about. You know, what is the cause of that? Is it a neoliberal way of defining what is successful? And what should be like. So after that phenomenon, I restarted the project and then expand the topics because before the pandemic, I was intended to talk about individualism and how this is actually or probably a trap, and how everybody wants to be entrepreneurs and what's the dangerous.、Um, What what has been dangerous in that, and also it was intended to talk about digital cultures, but during that amelioration of the pandemic, I started to expand that and to cover the topics about the art system and also the emotions of that and what is sharing between different people instead of just talking about individual feelings and to interrogate. The idea of being individuals. I was having trouble of contacting artists and convince them that、um, this this project is relevant and it is important for them to to work for, especially during that difficult time. And at that time, there were emerging amount of online projects. Institutions are doing different sorts of practices online, and all call them online projects and online exhibitions. In that context, I started to rethink about what's the point of doing one more online exhibition or show. And gradually, I started to feel that there is some point, because I noticed that it is quite easy to exhibit photos of art objects and. And, and to share that online and call it online exhibitions, it is also quite easy to build up a, a digital model of a show and then let people to navigate around that、um, 3D model. But it is not that easy to co-produce with artists 
some artworks which is relevant to themselves and also relevant to what is happening around. So in that sense, I think no longer being able to be able is a chance for us to think about what is the possibility of co-working and co-production online and whether this can be can become a chance for both the artist and myself to reveal some materials that we always want to share but never get chance to share through physical exhibitions and events. After my conversation with Hang, we heard an excerpt of the audio from Emma Finn and Mina Hideri Waite's work, Protect and Survive 2.0. No Longer Being Able to Be Able will be on the SCALF site from the 21st of October 2020 until January 2021 and archived thereafter. The artists in the show are Babe World, who are Ashley Williams and Georgina Tyson, Meech Boache, Joshua Citarella, Dank Collective, who are Grant Bingham, Tori Carr, James D. Hopkins, Ian Williamson, and Zen Khalid. Durd, who are Zhijing Zhao and Rei Shi, Emma Finn, Anna Freistein, Max Grau, Mina Hedari Waite, Seyun Huang, Judith Kees, Simona Mee, Donatella De La Rata, Frankie Roberts, and Geraldine Snell. That's all for this episode of the Scalf Podcast. I'd like to thank Hang Lee for taking the time to talk me through the new show and for helping with the audio setup. To find out more about Hang Lee and her other projects, her website is hang-li.net. We heard sound pieces by Durd and Emma Finn and Mina Hideri Waite. Theme music on this episode is courtesy of the Cleaners from Venus and the Free Music Archive. I am Mark Belden. I'd also like to send a big thank you to Claire Undy and Lizzie Munn at SCALF. This production is supported using public funding by the National Lottery through Arts Council England. SCALF is at www.scalf.org.uk and all the past exhibitions are archived there. You can email us at podcast@scalf.org.uk. Listen or subscribe to the Scalf podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Episode 9 will accompany the next exhibition in January 2021. Until then. Yeah.